Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. We've been in this series in the book of Revelation, and I've got good news. Whether you have been struggling with that and you're desperate to come up for air, or whether you've been really loving it, uh, the good news is that one of the big uh, geeky books that I read this week described this passage we've just read as the first scene of the last act of the great drama of Revelation. So if you're ready to come up for air, we're almost there, okay? Uh, If you've been loving it, I imagine knowing uh, us will drag out that last act for ages yet. So still lots of revelation to come. Um, So either way, good news. Now, we're going to get to that passage in a minute, but uh, I don't know what you've been up to the last week. Uh, The last week for me and my household has been really long looked forward to. We got the chance to go away for 48 hours uh, with our airbeds to uh, the flat of some friends in central London. We got to explore uh, all the sites of London, uh, or many of them, most of the free ones. Um, and we had lots of fun. Uh, we had our first ever Five Guys, uh, which apparently that, that is a thing in Birmingham as well. Um, but that was our first time doing that. And uh, my daughter, Rosie, used some of her birthday money to buy a little broom on the first day. And so she walked around London sweeping uh, for (laughs) so many days, uh, so many hours. Uh, Here we are in, like, uh, Kew Gardens, and she was not interested in any of it, just sweeping. On the underground, sweeping. Uh, It it was very embarrassing. Um, But but really, uh, even greater than this, the the centrepiece of our 48 hours in London was a theatre trip to see the musical Wicked. Put your hand up if you've seen Wicked. Oh, I've got some whoops. Wow. Okay. Well, um, I still haven't seen Wicked because I had to stay home with Rosie and uh, sweep. Um, But the others went to see Wicked. Uh, Wicked, if you don't know, is a, a musical that sits alongside the story of The Wizard of Oz. Are you aware of that? Uh, it's not so much a prequel or a sequel, and people get very annoyed if you call it that. Uh, it's really a parallel drama that sits alongside it, telling the same story, but from a completely different vantage point. And so you get very much uh, the same characters. So the Wizard of Oz is there, the Witch is there, the Tin Man, the Lion, the Scarecrow, I don't know. Uh, you've got all of those folks there. And many of the same events that you know are happening as well. So you get the tornado that blows Dorothy to Oz. You get the Lion losing his courage and the Tin Man losing his heart and all these things. It's all familiar And yet, alongside all that is familiar and that you recognize, it's also, I'm told, a very deeply unsettling thing to watch because as you witness these same events from a different perspective, you realize that everything you thought you knew about those people and that story was way off. And you've been misreading this the whole time, and so has everyone, and you want to run out and go, no, 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 you've misunderstood it, it's actually like this. You see, the curtain is pulled back when you watch Wicked and you see things how they really are. And that is the book of Revelation. That is the best analogy that I have ever done. I'm so proud of that one. (laughs) Right, that is what the book of Revelation... Yes! Let's pray. No, that's not the end. You see, what Wicked is... To the Wizard of Oz, revelation is to life as a Christian, okay? 
First to the original Christians, the first readers of Revelation, uh, suffering, if you remember, brutally at the hands of the vicious Roman Empire. But then it's, uh, it, it kind of functions in the same way to Christians on through the ages and across the globe, to all of us who are waiting for the return of Jesus. Because in Revelation, you see many of the same characters and many of the same events that you're used to seeing. You see kings and empires and lukewarm Christians and violence and natural disaster and faithful Christians. But you see all of those things that you're used to seeing from a totally different perspective, from heaven's perspective, that you might see it rightly. And the clue is really in the name, right? It's the book of Revelation, revealing to you, unveiling to you, peeling back the curtain so that you can wander through your life, not taken in by myth and and clouds and unrealities, but you can see things as God sees them. And in chapter 17, we get a whole load of revelation, of revealing, all centered around four big characters that are set up in this chapter in two contrasts. So we're going to see Babylon in contrast to the church, and we're going to see right at the end, quite quickly, the beast in contrast to the lamb. Babylon and the church, the beast and the lamb. First, let's look at Babylon. Verse 5, this character is mentioned, Babylon the Great. Now, Babylon, I imagine you're aware, has come up quite a lot in Revelation already. And whether you know or don't know, it's the name of a city from the Old Testament story. And this city was opposed to God, but much more important than that for our purposes today, it was intent on trying to make God followers be opposed to God. It was intent on trying to stop those who are faithful to God being faithful to God. And to do that, you might remember if you know your Old Testament, it had two main tactics, really. The, the, the main one was intimidation, like persecution, violence, threat, intimidation. So many of the really harrowing stories that we think are kids' work stories, like Daniel and the Lion's Den is a violent story of persecution and intimidation. That happens in Babylon. Or uh, the fiery furnace, and we're like, woo, there's someone in the fire with them. Yay, they're protected. That is a fiery furnace, and three faithful followers of God are thrown into it. That happened where? In Babylon. But here's the thing. It didn't always have to get to intimidation. Sometimes Babylon could use this other thing, because it was a very modern, very tolerant city. It could use this other tactic that we might call enculturation, which is instead of having to shove you in a furnace to make you stop following God, it would just offer you some position, a bit of status, try and change how you understood your identity, change how you viewed your history, perhaps gave you some new literature just to give you a different take on things. And Babylon would slowly but surely try and rewire you and reprogram you and reculture you and restore you so that you wouldn't need to be kicked into a fire to abandon your faith. 
you would choose to freely because it would feel like freedom because you now see things like a Babylonian. If they couldn't persuade you, though, then don't you worry, they'd persecute you. Now, why is Babylon getting such a mention in Revelation? You might be thinking, this is a very old city, why is it relevant? The first readers of Revelation would have agreed with you because Babylon was already destroyed when they got revelation. So why are, you, why are we getting all this stuff about an ancient destroyed city? It's because it's symbolic for all communities and cultures through the ages where those same dynamics are at play. Where through intimidation or enculturation, the society within which you live is trying to make you abandon your faithfulness to God. And for the first readers, that would have meant Rome. And so you get lots of kind of reference to Rome in this letter. But really, Babylon is all places everywhere that are trying to persuade or persecute God's people into what you might call apostasy. That's turning your back on your God. And so here's Babylon again in this chapter, but now we get something new about Babylon, something different for us to get our minds around, a different image, a different thing about her is unveiled, and that's that she's not now only a city, but she's depicted as what? A prostitute. Verse 1, the great prostitute. And so that we're not in any doubt who this is, verse 5 tells us, a mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great. What's being revealed to you so that you might see things rightly in this chapter? That any culture that's opposed to God is not just like a city, it's also like a prostitute. And this prostitute seems at first very impressive and very attractive and very appealing even. So much so that John himself in verse 6 says this, I stared at her in complete amazement. And so let's also take a look. She's amazing. Firstly, she has power in abundance. Verse 3, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten horns. That's the beast has seven heads and ten horns. Now we'll get to the beast, but imagine you're watching a film, even a Disney film, and a character flies flies in on a beast with seven heads that's got ten horns. You know that character is powerful, right? Babylon is powerful. Babylon also has wealth. Verse 4, the woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewellery made of gold and precious gems and pearls. This is the most expensive stuff you could get your mitts on in the ancient world. Purple and scarlet, wow! She also knows how to have a good time. She has fun and she has freedom Verse 4, in her hand she held a gold goblet. Verse 6, I could see that she was drunk. She's having a great time. She's free. She's feeling it. She's living her best life. She's out having a great time. And best of all, 
she is willing to share all of that with you and me if we will lie with her. Verse 2, the kings of the world have committed adultery with her and the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine. Do you see it? If you align yourself with her, if you tangle yourself up with her body and soul, if you give your life to her, then you can have what she's offering. That wine that she was drunk on, now you can have it too. Oh, she'll share with you. Sounds amazing, hey? Power, wealth, fun, freedom. And if you sleep with her, you can have it all. Now, if you're getting distracted for a moment by this kind of talk of um, prostitution, remember this is symbolism. So this isn't talking about the, the modern day reality of prostitution and the socioeconomic situations that lead to that and how um, abusive men leave many women with very few choices. It's not doing that. It's not about that. If you want to have that conversation, have it another time. But just so you're not distracted, I'm aware of that. This is symbolic of what the cultural dynamics are in Babylon or Rome or Birmingham or wherever you may find yourself. As the culture that you sit in screams to you or beautifully sings to you that real life exists away from all that Jesus rubbish, that you can have power, wealth, fun, freedom without him, Babylon then and Babylon now calls out to you Come and give your all to me. Come and entangle yourself with me. Come and lie with me. Now, here's the thing. Some of you are doing that. Some of you are doing that. Some of you are thinking about doing that. You're abandoning your faithfulness to Jesus because you hear the siren calls of Babylon the prostitute. And as she tries to seduce you, or more accurately, as she tries to seduce us and draw us away, when some of us inevitably go over to her, which the Bible and the New Testament teaches some of us will, When we go over to her and give her our life and entangle ourselves with her, do you know it's very likely it will be the same appealing attributes in this chapter that have made you give your life to her at the expense of your soul. So maybe it will be around a power thing. I'm not submitting to God. I'm not having my autonomy taken off me. Or maybe it will be a wealth thing. I'm not letting go of my money. Or I'm not passing up that opportunity. Or maybe it will be a fun and freedom thing. Like it's so restrictive following Jesus. So I'm going to go. Although it's symbolism, I think one of the things we're being shown is maybe it will be a sex thing. Where I like the Jesus stuff and I like the the songs, and I like the spirituality aspects of it. I like having something bigger than myself to believe in, but don't even dare touch my view of sex. (laughs) 
And actually, the culture's view of sex has won my heart, and so I'm in body and soul with, with her. And if that was all that was in this chapter, I'd probably be there with you. Let's go. But then we get the unveiling that you might see it as it actually is. Pay very close attention. And I call you as a brother and as a, a friend and uh, as, as a, one of the shepherds under the good shepherd in your life. Please, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, do not sell your soul to Babylon because look at what she's really like. Let's just take the goblet, for example. Look at verse 4. What's in that lovely drink she wants to give you? Well, it's full of obscenities and impurities and her immorality. As in, to drink the wine that she's offering you is to take into yourself, is to take into your person, is to absorb into who you are that which is obscene and impure and immoral. And those words probably used to hit harder than they do now, and you probably just roll your eyes at them. But in the, the mind of God, seeing things as they really are, these are very destructive and devastating realities to absorb into yourself. To drink them in is not life. It is not life. And look even more shockingly. Take a little smell of the goblet. Car, fun, freedom, have a little drink. Look at verse 6. Look what's in it. I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. Do you want a drink? Do you want a sip? This alluring, charming, seductive culture depicted as this prostitute underneath the jewels and the gems and the glad rags is savage and is depicted by God Most High as a blood-drinking, spiteful murderer who finds her fun and freedom in the downfall and death of God's people. And this is literal as the millions and millions of martyrs who have died for following Jesus would testify. But it's also symbolic of something perhaps even more terrifying, which is of a spiritual destruction and a spiritual tearing down of a ruining that she wants to do in the people of God. Remember, it might not even require that she boots you into a furnace. She might just restore you so you walk away yourself and call it freedom. Babylon then, Babylon now, she looks great, and she's not. But there is one who looks pretty pathetic most of the time, who when you see things how God sees them, is wonderful. And you think, I'm going to Jesus, we're not going to Jesus yet, we'll get to him, he'll get his moment. But actually, there's another city that's depicted as a woman in the book of Revelation that we are being deliberately shown is the contrast to this fraud, 
Babylon. There's another city woman who Babylon is just a bad copy of, and it's the church, the people of God. You skip a few chapters, probably four months' time for us. Chapter 21, verse 9. Come with me, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. You see that? It's a city depicted as a woman again. But instead of the Babylon prostitute mashup, we now have a Jerusalem bride mashup. And they're introduced, oh, we haven't got time to do it, but I could show you parallel. They're introduced in their different chapters with the exact same phrasing. An angel comes and takes them to see, show me this, and it's all exactly the same. It's very clear that what's deliberately being done is you're being shown a contrast between these two city women. Two different cultures, two contrasting cities, two contrasting lovers. And the question, therefore, of the closing chapters of Revelation is, who are you going to give yourself to, the prostitute or the bride? And I don't know if you know this, but this is actually the question that's been hanging over the whole book of Revelation since chapter 1. And when I saw this from a clever person writing it in a book, it rocked my world. And so I'm sharing it with you. But if it's good, it's not mine. If it's bad, it's mine. But if this is powerful, take it from someone else. This is a beautiful thing. You see, in chapter 1, do you remember that vision of Jesus? Eyes like fire. Remember this? Hair like wool, eyes like fire, mouth with a sword, down to the feet, burnished bronze, back up. This kind of start at the head, down to the feet, back up to the head vision of Jesus. You remember this? We sung a song. I know your eyes are like a flame of fire. We did it once because it was that passage. We'll never do it again. But that, that vision of Jesus in chapter one. Do you know that that literary technique, stick with me, of going from head to toe to head again was used commonly in the ancient world to introduce a romantic lead in a story. That head to toe to head, if you're wired like the people reading this, you'd immediately see that and go, whoa, who is that lover? Who is that romantic lead? It's kind of like the, the modern day would, equivalent would be like you watch a film and, and people are sitting in an office and then like a, a guy walks in and there's a, a woman in the corner and they look at each other. And no one's saying, later in the film, these two are going to get together. But they look at each other and maybe the music turns like some slow jams music. And you know, like, oh, okay, I see where this is going, right? And no one's told you, but you just know because you get it. That's what this vision is for the first century readers. And so screaming at you from page one of Revelation is the question, who is Jesus going to marry? Who's he going to give himself to? Where's the woman that he's going to absolutely be faithful to? And then in chapter 17, you get this female character, and she's this vile, gaudy, violent, horrific pretender. But hallelujah. Jesus does not give himself to the prostitute Babylon. Jesus the lover, Jesus the bridegroom, is waiting for his faithful bride, the new Jerusalem, the people of God. And so that's why in a few chapters time in Revelation, we'll get to this bit, and it's called in your little Bible, the marriage supper of the Lamb, because the Lamb and his bride will be together. And so God is screaming to us all the way through Revelation, if we have ears to hear it, who are you going to give yourself to, the prostitute 
or the bride of Christ. The prostitute whose joy and delight is to drink the cup filled with the blood of the church? Or will you give yourself to the bride whose joy and delight is to drink the cup symbolically filled with the sacrificial blood of Jesus, the lamb that was slain for us? Are you going to sell your soul to Babylon or will you give your life for the bride of Christ? Now we're very almost out of time. And there's another little contrast that John shows us here, or that God shows John. And it's between the beast and the lamb. First, the beast. We've seen this fella in chapter 13. Uh, But this time, the beast is a bit different. Because the beast is a scarlet beast. And people have a little discussion about why is he scarlet now. The one that convinced me most was that he's scarlet due to the blood splatter from the Christians that he's been devouring. But who knows? And it's all pretty hard to pin down in this chapter. Who's the beast? What does it represent? But there's a clue to it being the political powers of Rome. You get this language of seven hills. And, uh, you know, Rome was built on seven hills, so maybe it's Rome. And then you get this stuff about horns that are kings, which could be like emperors. But then it gets really confusing and the commentators have a brain fart because the, the, the beast becomes a horn that then it is the beast but is also one of the horns of the beast. And it's like, it's a psychedelic abstract art vision trying to throw stuff at you. It's not like really easy to pin down. But I think what we can say is that due to the kind of closeness with the prostitute in this chapter, we're being shown political powers through the ages that are against God's people and that prop up and enable a culture that's trying to seduce you away from faithfulness to God. And just like the prostitute at first glance, I just need to be honest, you would be fair game to go along with what the beast says because the beast is flipping massive and the beast is flipping terrifying. And so if that beast walks into your life and says, recant your faith in Jesus or I'm throwing you and your family to the lions, I understand that, of course, you would feel like you'd go along with what the beast says. 21st century British values demand that you see Jesus as one spiritual voice among many equally valid other spiritual voices that we're not allowed to claim is anything different to the others. And the beast roars at you and tells you you have to say that. I understand you feel like saying that because it's a beast. But here's the thing, to line up with the beast is in the end to be lined up against the lamb. Because they are at war with each other. Verse 14, together, that's the beast, the kings, the horns, the heads, the prostitute, the whole show. Together, they will go to war against the lamb. You have to choose And as so much of the last chapters have been showing us, on the last day, we will want very much to have sided with the lamb over the beast. Here's why. Verse 11. The scarlet beast, the blood-splattered beast, is headed for destruction. And left standing, victorious, mighty, conquering, outlasting them all is the little lamb. 
the lamb that was slain. Doesn't even have the courage to speak up for himself at trial. Everyone runs away from him. Shameful on the cross. Can't even look at him, he's so pathetic. The little lamb. Against a seven-headed beast. I know it feels like you should go with the beast, but you're being shown how things really are. Because in the end, when all the horns and the heads and the prostitute come to destroy the little lamb, look at him. Verse 14, they go to war against the lamb, but the lamb will defeat them. Because he is the Lord of all lords and the king of all kings. Hallelujah. And you want the best bit? Just like the prostitute shared her fake riches and wine and life with any who cling to her, so the lamb will share his cup of blessing, his victory with any who cling to him. Verse 14, his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. So look, I've been heavy. I don't think I've been heavier than the passage has been. And so with strength in my spine, I ask you, who will you choose? As we live our lives this week, it will feel like abandoning Jesus is the route to joy. We will hear the siren call to put our trust in this fake marriage of the prostitute and the beast. This book, this chapter is screaming at you, urging you, choose the bride and the lamb. And the irony is that when all is said and done, tick tock, tick tock, tick tock, in the blink of an eye, when he's coming on the clouds, he will share with his faithful ones all wealth, all power, all freedom. Anyway, more and above anything that that prostitute can give you, the lamb, you will reign with him. And so it is a very wise choice, but a very difficult one. I say it again, who will you choose?